Well, hello and welcome to Philippi, or at least welcome to the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. Paul was under house arrest in Rome, most likely. This imprisonment almost certainly relates to what we read about his life in Acts chapter 28. So he's guarded by one soldier and he's chained up, but he's allowed visitors such as Timothy and Epaphroditus. And as he's in this house, but under arrest, he thinks of the first church that he opened in Europe. He remembers Lydia, the seller of purple, who was his first convert. He thinks of the girl's slave who was delivered by an un from an unclean spirit. He thinks of the jailer and his family who believed and were baptised. He probably thinks of Iodia and Syntyche, two quarrelsome church members, and of Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus had come from Philippi to Rome, search of Paul, found him, and brought to Paul a, a gift of money from the church in Philippi. And he'd been ill on the way, he'd nearly died. And Paul was writing this letter partly as a thank you to go back to Philippi in Epaphroditus's pocket to say thank you for the gift of money. It's around the year 61 AD, about 30 years since the resurrection of Jesus. Philippi itself in those days was a province in was in the province of Macedonia. Today we would call it in Greece. It was a very Roman place. It coveted the title of colony because if you were a citizen of Philippi you were deemed to be a citizen of Rome. So you had the same legal advantages and privileges as Romans had. Your town had a theatre and a forum and city gates and pagan temples. It was a little piece of Rome in Macedonia or Greece. And Paul opens his letter in the traditional way of letters in those days, namely with the announcement of who the writer is and then who the recipients are and then a greeting. Let me read to you verses one to two. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're about 10 years on since the church began back there in Acts chapter 16. And Paul, who is a Greek speaking Jewish Turk, who is probably in his late 50s, is writing together with Timothy, who is a Greek speaking mixed race Turk, a much younger man who had been visiting Paul in the prison. And he describes both of them as being slaves of King Jesus. The thing about slaves is you are belong to somebody and you obey somebody and he says we belong to Jesus and we obey Jesus and he calls all the church members saints. Now the word saint is related to the word sanctify and remember a few weeks back we talked about sanctification as being the process by which we are made more and more holy more and more like Jesus but Paul says you're already saints in other words, Paul distinguishes between your status and your state. He says your status is you are a saint. Now, God regards you as an ordinary Christian as being a saint. But you're actually not yet that yet. And therefore, you still need to go on being sanctified. That's why in this letter, he tells them how to behave better as Christians. He then says that we Christians are in Christ Jesus, a very characteristic 
turn of phrase in Paul. Jesus had said in John chapter 15, abide in me and I in you. Christ is in the Christian and the Christian is in Christ. And the boy was on a lake with his dad, couldn't understand this. And his dad says, well, look, take that bucket and put the bucket in the water. Now, is the bucket in the water or is the water in the bucket? And the boy could see that both were true. In Christ is Paul's permanent address. And then he greets them with a Christian and a Hebrew blessing. The Christian blessing is that of grace and the Hebrew blessing is one of peace or shalom. Grace precedes peace. To enjoy the peace of God, you need to enjoy the grace of God. And then in verses 3 to 11, he prays for the Philippian church. Now, how do you pray for your church? If you're anything like me, you say something very basic like, Lord, please bless my church, bless its leaders, bless the Sunday school, bless the services, bless the Hope Centre and the food bank. May your kingdom grow. Amen. Compare that with the quality of this prayer that Paul prays for this church in Philippi. And I'm going to turn what he writes into a prayer, the kind of prayer you could pray utilising these words. Thank you, Lord, for my church and for the joy its members bring into my life. Thank you for those who began this church and please carry on doing a good work in my church until Jesus returns. I hold the church in my heart with the affection of Christ Jesus. May the church's love abound and grow in knowledge and insight. May we be able to discern what is best and may we all be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. May we be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Now that turns an ordinary prayer for the church into a powerful prayer by utilising the word of God. A few bits and bobs about it. He mentions joy. This is a very joyful letter. 17 times the word joy or rejoice or glad is used in this letter. He refers in verse 5 to the first day until now. Well, the first day was the day when Lydia got saved back in Acts chapter 16. And in verses 6 and 10, he talks about the day of Christ, the day Jesus returns openly as king. Six times in this letter, he refers to this day. He talks about loving the Lord and that that love will lead to more knowledge and greater insight. And that's why we're studying our Bibles here today, because we love the Lord. We want to know him better and we want greater insight into New Testament truth. And then if we do love the Lord, we will be pure and blameless. Pure is referring to the inward you, your mind, your motives, how you behave when you're own, on your own and nobody is looking. Blameless is your outward behaviour, that which others see. If you're blameless, no one can point the finger at you and say, well, that isn't consistent with being a Christian. In the next section, Paul refers to the past, the present and the future. And as I read it, ask yourself, is Paul grumbling or is he glowing? Is the glass half empty or is it half full and filling up? Is Paul an optimist or a pessimist? Twixt optimist and pessimist, the difference is droll. The optimist sees the donut, the pessimist sees the whole. 
Well, the past is here in verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. But OK, what has happened to Paul? Well, he was in Jerusalem. He had been falsely accused of defiling the temple. The crowds turned on him and nearly murdered him. The Romans had to save him by arresting him. There had then been a failed attempt to assassinate him. And he went on trial before two Roman governors and also by one a biased king, the King Agrippa. He appealed to Rome. I want to be tried by Caesar. And he was taken across the Mediterranean Sea and shipwrecked. And now he's under house arrest in Rome, chained to a guard. Tomorrow he may be executed. That's what's happened. Does he say, oh, woe is me? Does he say the devil's having a field day? Does he say the future is bleak? Does he say I'm feeling so sorry for myself? Not at all. Let's read on. Let's read about the present, how he reacts to what has happened to him. As a result, verse 13, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. All these things have happened, all these reverses have happened to Paul, but they have actually advanced the gospel. The palace guard has heard about Jesus in verse 13. Verse 14, other Christians have stepped up to the plate and more evangelism is going on. What was being done by one man is now being done by many. And verse 15, some of those who are preaching are doing so out of goodwill, but others are doing it out of envy and rivalry. It's quite remarkable, isn't it? In those days, people didn't like Paul, real Christians, and they preached in a way that would put Paul down. Let me read N.T. Wright's translation of verse 15. There are some, I should say, who are proclaiming the king because of envy and rivalry, but there are others who are doing it out of goodwill. These last are acting from love, since they know that I'm in prison because of defending the gospel. But the others are announcing the king out of selfishness and jealousy. They're not acting from pure motives. They imagine that they will make more trouble for me in my captivity. So what? Only this. The king is being announced, whether people mean it or not. I'm happy to celebrate that. He didn't care about their motives. Some of these preachers were preaching in such a way as to make life worse for Paul, to put him down, to make his conditions in prison worse. He didn't mind. He said he was glad because Christ the King was being preached. He was rejoicing. He showed the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. There's no bitterness there. There's no sense of wanting to get his own back on these people. He's glad that Christ is being proclaimed. That's the present. Then he looks to the future. Verse 19. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and help given me by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, 
what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. He's saying in verse 19, because of their prayers, he's going to be delivered. But that deliverance could come one way or another, either by life or by death. Verse 21, if he's released and he lives, Christ will be with him. If he's not released and he dies, he will get even more of Christ because to die is gain. Or N.T. Wright says to die means to make a profit. In other words, Paul's come to the point where he feels better off dead than alive. Happy the Christian who knows they are better off dead than alive. Why? If I'm alive, he said, Christ is with me. But if I'm dead, then I am with Christ. And that means gain, profit, better. I desire to be with Christ, which is better by far for me, he says. But verse 24, better for you if I live. And how wonderful to know for the Christian that as soon as they pass through the gateway of death, they are immediately with Christ in Jesus's presence. But not for Paul yet. He puts their needs above his own. He's convinced in verse 25 that it's much more likely that he will live and continue to serve them and help to fill the Philippians with joy. Therefore, he says, because of all this in verse 27, get a grip. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together with one accord for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him since you were going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. He's saying, look, I may live, I may die, but if I die, I'm going to be with Christ. Look, you are saints. Your status is that of sainthood. Your status is that of being made holy. Christ is with you in your hearts. You are in him he is in you. Therefore, conduct yourselves in the manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live like Jesus. That's what sanctification means. You who are saints must live like Jesus lived. The gospel is about sins forgiven. He's saying avoid sin and show forgiveness. 
The gospel is about Jesus as king. Let Jesus reign in your lives. And verse 27, stand firm and strive for the gospel. During the noughties, the Ministry of Defence restructured the British Army. And nearly all of the old county regiments were dissolved and rolled into larger regiments. Our local regiment was the uh, Worcestershire and Sherwood Foresters, and other nearby ones were the Staffordshire Regiment and, and the Cheshire Regiment. And in 2007, those three regiments, the Cheshire, the Worcesters and Foresters and the Staffordshires, were all amalgamated into one regiment, one new body. And Andy Ronaldson of this parish and I managed to get ourselves tickets uh, to be invited to the inauguration of this new regiment, which was conducted by the Prince of Wales in Tamworth Castle. The new regiment was to be called the Mercian Regiment, and they needed a new motto. And the new motto could have been lifted from Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says, stand firm and strive. The regiment's new motto was, stand firm and strike hard. Stand firm in defence, strike hard in attack. Paul says, stand firm in defending the gospel and strive, strive to grow the gospel and to expand the gospel and to spread the gospel. He says in 28, don't be frightened by those who oppose you. And it's a very strong word he uses there. It's it's the word that might apply to an uncontrollable stampede of horses. Don't be stampeded by those who oppose you. Don't be frightened to death by those who oppose you. Because fear can take over your emotions like that and paralyse you. But fear had not done this to Paul, even though he might shortly be executed. So don't let it do it to you either. He says the enemy is going to be destroyed, but you are going to be saved. And in verse 29, he says it has been granted to you to believe and to suffer. And extraordinarily, when it says it has been granted to you, strictly speaking, that word should be translated as graced, graced. God in his grace has enabled you to believe and to suffer in this case imprisonment. Now Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. Remember rewards? James, the Lord's brother, wrote, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Paul is saying, if you're facing imprisonment, or some form of persecution because of the gospel, it's been graced to you, so rise to it. He says in verse 30, you are going through the same struggle you saw I had. Well, remember what happened in Acts 16? He was arrested, he was stripped, he was flogged, he was imprisoned. Now he's saying, look, you Philippians, you're going through similar things. Now get a grip, stand firm and strive. I wonder how you and I would cope with a dose of persecution. It's not very likely that we would have our throats cut by ISIS. It's not very likely that somebody would knock on our door and place us under arrest. 
because of our faith. But let me take you back to Wesley's day in the 1700s. Let me take you back to one of our nearest counties, the county of Staffordshire. In Wesley's day in Staffordshire, and I quote, the mob assaulted one after another all the houses of those who were called Methodists. They first broke all their windows, then they made their way in, and all the table, chairs, chests of drawers, with whatsoever else was not easily removable, they dashed in pieces. What they could not well break as feather beds, they cut in pieces and strewed about the room. Did you know that Wesley's preachers here in the Midlands were regularly beaten up by mobs? Now, just supposing in our day, equality laws and non-discrimination laws got to the point where you could be punished by the courts for saying that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is the only way to God and the only way to heaven. Could you put up with your house being trashed? Could you put up with being fined for your faith? Could you put up with losing your job because of what you believe about Jesus? Could you put up with going to prison because of your faith in Jesus? During the bad old days of the Soviet Union, when churches were suppressed by the state, there was an illegal prayer meeting being held in somebody's house. And during the prayer meeting, the secret police stormed in and they threatened to arrest anyone unless they denied their faith. They said, tell us you don't believe and you can walk out of that door freely. And sheepishly, a few did. And then the police shut the door behind them, took off their disguises and the pastor said, now we can get on with the real business of this prayer meeting. They weren't secret police at all. They were just trying to weed out anybody in the church who wasn't prepared to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. How would you get on if in England we had to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ? Would we stand firm and strive for the gospel? Well, in this talk, we have seen that Paul and Timothy were slaves of Jesus. They belonged to him and they obeyed him. Paul has prayed powerfully for this, his first European church. Paul is in prison, probably for the third time, maybe the fourth. And Christian preachers are trying to make things worse for him, although others are preaching and the gospel is spreading. He expects to be released, but he may die. But he knows if he does die, it will be better for him because he will immediately be with Christ. And some members of the Philippian church are themselves in prison because they are having the same struggle he had. Nevertheless, he said, get a grip, stand firm and strive. Don't be frightened. Don't be stampeded like terrified horses. You have been graced to suffer for Jesus. So rejoice. Either way, you can't lose. If you live, Christ will be with you. If you die, you will be with Christ. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. 
So stand firm and strive for the gospel. He might have said, stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. Lift high his royal banner, it must not suffer loss. From victory unto victory his army he shall lead, till every foe is vanquished and Christ is Lord indeed. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, the strife will not be long. This day the noise of battle, the next the victor's song. To him that overcometh a crown of life shall be, he with the King of glory shall reign eternally. Amen. Thank you.